0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farogh, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, we have Mr. Nate Nasralla, some of the most tactical tips of things you can use in between
1: sales meetings. Nick, he's the founder of Fluent.io. Why should people listen? We talked about doing stuff like reverse demos. It's not a demo backwards. It's something different. Starting meetings with executives five minutes late and then using trigger phrases with your customers to help you win some more deals and accelerate your pipeline. One, two, three, reverse demo. Three, two, one, enjoy the show. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. All right, Nate, welcome to the show. We start
2: every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. Number one, the executive pre-read. Executives always process information far faster than the typical rep can speak it when they're communicating. So what you want to do is start your meeting five minutes after the hour, attach a short one-page memo to the invite, let them digest what you want to communicate, your point of view, then join the call and dig right in afterwards. Beautiful. What's number two? Number two co-create a one-page business case with your champion in the deal. There are four different sections to the business case. First is the problem statement. Second is the approach. Third is the payoff. And fourth is the investment. You want to make sure to use language that's internal to the buying team. Weave in trigger words or trigger phrases that are going to signal to an executive that you're aligned with a priority that they care about. And you want to attach it to affordable email to make it easy to travel around the buying team.
1: Very nice. Round us out. What's number three, Nate?
2: Number three, run reverse demos with daily users. So most daily users are going to be spending 80% or more of their week in just a couple of different workflows. So you want to identify what those are. And instead of demoing how that works in your product, you want to ask the prospect to share their screen, walk through how they get that job done today in their current setup, and then Turn over screen sharing, mouse control to the prospect and allow them to experience how that would work in your product to give them a very clear before and after or current and future state.
0: All right, Nate. So let's say that I have a champion who's on my side, we're bought in, and they're like, All right, Arman, it's time for you and me to go take down the big boss. We're going to our CEO. What do I put in that executive memo to that CEO? who is probably extremely busy, and I can barely even get to read a one-sentence
2: email. So this is where number two comes into play. So the one-page business case that you are building with your champion is the thing that you are bringing into that executive meeting. The very first thing that you're calling out is the problem statement. How you are framing and defining the problem has to show them like, hey, this is a fire that is burning hot. It is something that is devastating, a priority that you care about. A little bit about the approach. You don't want to go deep into product. This is where people often get far too deep. You just want to show that the way in which you would go about solving this, there's a clear line of sight, which then leads to some type of payoff, like an outcome that attaches itself to an executive level metric that that leader is already bought into and focused on. And that's how you signal to them, hey, this is a conversation that's worth having. I am a huge advocate for writing as a discipline that all sales reps should be developing themselves in because writing teaches you to think clearly. So when you're in the meeting, if you have written out your point of view, you're going to be able to communicate exactly what it is that you want to say to that executive. And that's really important because the time that you get directly with an executive is, you know, it's just a sliver or a fractional amount of time that you would spend with the buying team in the deal. So that's why it's, one, something that you are saying But two, it also needs to be written down something that you're sending ahead of time. And so especially if you check with the champion or an executive assistant and they say, yeah, we actually do use written materials, you know, the pre-read would be all right. The more that you can send that ahead of time, it's just going to set you up for a far more productive conversation. Nate,
1: in one of your actionable takeaways, you talked about the idea of using a trigger phrase or, or internal language that ties to business
2: initiatives. Can you talk to me about what that is? Yeah. So the idea or the practice that you want to do is immediately inside of three to five words, align yourself with something that the executive has already sold on. They already care about a particular priority or a project. And most executives will develop a type of internal shorthand to signal to their staff what they're referencing. So a example of this, um, the former CEO of SunGrid, I was talking with, and he was telling me all about an internal initiative that they had for years and years called Make the Mail Move. And so whenever somebody on his team, whether you were in product, customer success, sales, came to him and said, Jim, I need budget approval for this. Let's invest in this. He said, well, how does this make the mail move? And so the idea is that a trigger phrase is something that isn't something you as the seller create. You find and discover it because it's the shorthand internal lingo that your buyers are accustomed to using.
1: It's funny, we actually have stuff like this at 30 Minutes to President's Club. Arman and I get together every quarter with our team, and we have conversations about, all right, what are we doing strategy-wise? And we came up with one we call the connective tissue, which is basically the idea that like, we have all of this content, and how do we get our podcast to point at our live tactic teardowns to point at our not so boring a newsletter to point back at the podcast and we call it the connective tissue strategy.
2: There you go. So if I wrote you an email, subject line connective tissue, if at the start of my memo, I put this advances the connective tissue or builds the connective tissue, you're like, oh, one, I should spend the time to h- hear them out. And then two, it just, it changes the posture entirely of a sales conversation because you're saying, okay, this is somebody who gets me. They're on my side as opposed to somebody external where you're like across from the table defending against this hard pitch. It's like, okay, I'm an insider here. I understand what's going on.
0: Nate, can we – Talk about this creation process of the business case in the first place, because my guess is you're not doing all this discovery and then all of a sudden you take out your Shakespearean feather quill and write an amazing sonnet for your prospect to go directly to their founder. My guess is you're collaborating with your prospect over multiple calls and they have input on this thing.
2: So talk me through what it looks like to actually build this business case with your prospect. So the analogy that I use for this is Mad Libs. So if you ever played Mad Libs as a kid, you know it's a way to build out a story by inserting different phrases or words. And so it's this exact same idea. So you're starting with a framework. So we talked about the sections earlier. Inside of each of those sections, problem statement, for example, happy to go deeper on this, but you can have a framework for how you define and write out a problem statement. So as you're going through discovery, call to call, you're asking questions to help you fill in the gaps or as Mad Libs as the analogy would hold to build out the storyline, using the words and the language of your buyer to fill it in, sharing it out after every call, asking for feedback, doing it in some type of shared space so that it's it's collaborative. And it builds from the very first conversation that you have all the way throughout the sales cycle.
1: So Nate, other pieces in this business case, you've got the approach, the payoff, the investment. Can you talk to me about when you're messaging what the approach looks like, are you doing a similar Mad Libs philosophy? You said I'm not supposed to go too deep with that, but like, how are you actually explaining how you help with said problem?
2: So the idea is that you shouldn't go too deep into the specific features that are unique to your product. The reason is that you first want to build a logical case for the right way to go about it. So a question that you could ask as an example of this is, Hey, I'm wondering what you feel needs to be true to solve this problem in your case. Or you could also ask, hey, when talking about this problem and ways that you might go about solving it, is there something that you feel is unique to your company that others just don't understand? And what you're trying to tease out is all of the different ways in which you might go about solving it aside or agnostic of a particular product. I'll give you one reason why this is important, Armand, related back to your question of helping like a below the line user or contact rise up above. So the more you were talking at an executive level, the higher the metric is all the way up the organization. So for example, increasing sales, driving revenue, right? That's a very very high level goal. You could do that in so many ways. You could increase net new sales. You could expand kind of net revenue from current customers. So when an executive is evaluating a goal, let's say revenue is slumping, that's the problem. They can, again, go about that in so many different ways. There are lots of different levers. So the first thing that you need somebody to believe, let's say you you sell a solution that helps prospect to grow pipeline for the very first time. You need, let's say it's the CRO to believe that that is going to be a better approach to driving revenue than, let's say, expanding or upselling current customers, maybe going out to a solution that is tracking down people who have used your product before and just changed jobs, right? So if you were to jump right into saying, hey, this is how we scrape contact data for brand new top of the funnel leads, you have totally missed a logical piece of the case to say, this is how we go about solving that problem. One thing that, Oftentimes,
0: we'll do to challenge our reps is we'll say, Your goal is to give a demo, but you're not allowed to say a single feature. You're not allowed to name even one feature in the demo. You can't talk about the things you can see. You are only allowed to speak in terms of what they wanted to do. And what this does is it forces you to describe things in a way to an executive who has never seen your product before and only now thinks in terms of, here's what I wish I could do. Eventually, you will get the shot to position your product there. So I'm curious here, is there a reason, Nate, that you're going through this specific order? So you go from problem statement, then the approach to solving that problem, and then you go the payoff to solving that problem, and then you talk about the investment all the way at the end.
2: Is there a reason that you have it structured in that order specifically? Yes. Each of these are different steps laying a bridge from where the customer or the prospect is today to where they want to go long-term. So the reason why you start at problem is first, deals aren't lost to competitors at the outset of the sales cycle. Their first loss because there's no project that's been prioritized no reason to do something and that only exists if you get everybody aligned on and agree that this is a gnarly problem that we have to do something about now so once that's established and somebody's bought in on that point then you can talk about okay here's the right way to go about solving it we just talked about the difference in keeping a high level approach versus you know product features now the reason why the payoff comes next is you need somebody to believe that this is going to be worth investing in. You can't talk about not only budget, which is this last piece investment. Most sales reps think in terms of pricing, like financial spend. But what an executive is going to be evaluating is trade-offs. What can't I have my team's time, energy focus on if I choose to do this? And so the value of that and the reason why they would want to make that trade off comes in the context of the payoff, something that they care about, what's going to be different in a very tangible way, and again, related to a metric that they own and are responsible for. So good question. The order for those reasons is very intentional.
1: That investment piece, I get what you're saying, right? If I'm an exec, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not just thinking about the dollars. I'm thinking about, okay, I'm going to have to take Armand off of A project and put him on B project, and it's going to take him six and a half weeks, and then he's going to need a vacation afterwards, and so it's going to delay another project a pretty long time. How are you articulating, and what are you articulating in that investment section, given that it is not just dollars?
2: Yeah, you are articulating roles dependencies and timelines. You're clearly painting a vision like, hey, we've done this before. We know how to do it. There is a clear path to making a change here. Because if somebody emotionally, logically, they're bought into it, but they don't believe that risk is minimal because there's a straight line to getting to that outcome, then they're going to back off and they're going to back away from the deal. So under the investment part, you're talking about specific names owners? What are the dependencies for success? Like, what are the things that they must do or dedicate time to? And then by what time? Like, when does this start? So that this can then very easily slide into the context of all of the other things that they're thinking about that they have in flight. So Nate, let's say that
0: I've artfully articulated the problem statement. I've explained what our approach is. I've said, hey, this is how much it's going to pay off. And here's what you can expect for the investment. And now this executive jumps on the call you talked about this being able to help you really nail those first couple minutes of the call. My guess is you don't start the call saying, hey, you read the doc, what'd you think? So once they've gotten on that call after reading that pre-read, how do you kick off the call, assuming that they have the context from that document?
2: Yeah, so the first thing that you can do is confirm and say something like, hey, I don't imagine I'm the only meeting on your calendar today. Did you have a chance to scan any bit of the document? And if so, maybe a helpful starting place would be understanding to what extent any piece of this resonated with you. If not, we could step back and I'm happy to detail it. Right. So to your point, sometimes it may not work out perfectly, so you want to start there. Now, if they did have a chance to scan it, What you want to do is open it up to them as soon as possible. And so that's where you're trying to pick out the pieces first that resonated. Do we have some common ground? Are we sharing an understanding? And you can begin to understand like why. And then from there, you can further unpack it. What a lot of people screw up in these meetings is they assume
0: that everything that your previous champions cared about is exactly what the executive is going to care about. So if you have a list of 10 things, you get into that big team meeting, you have a 60 minute demo with that executive and you're like, awesome, I'm just going to show you these 10 things. But to your point earlier, Nate, I think you wrote it in your prep, which is there's a certain pace that executive thinks at and they probably really only care about two A lot and they might care about another two that aren't on the page right and so i'm curious let's say that they're like you know this thing really resonates over here but also like i have this big problem over here that you haven't even mentioned that's frankly like a much larger priority how deep are you going into discovery there knowing that your champion's probably expecting you to do some sort of demo
2: at some point you know what i mean Mm -hmm. So this is one of the questions that you do want to ask the executive as part of the discovery process and discovery could be something let's say you started lower in the organization. Discovery is continuing on like call four or five with the organization, right? So you still want to go all the way back and you can ask a question like, I know there are a number of different things based on my conversations with reference the champion that your team has in motion. I'm interested to know, are there other projects that you feel would take priority or precedent over this particular initiative? Help me understand where this falls relative to all of the other things that you're investing in right now. Because if you start going deep all the way down without understanding where this sits on their list of things, then again, there's significant deal risk that you just have left to chance and you can't address. And so the idea is like, yeah, you may have discovered a problem this champion cares a lot about, and you may get happy years thinking, great, this executive will care about it as well. But they may say, look, I'm just going to let that fire burn. So that's what you're trying to uncover with that question. I love the phrase from Charles Chuck Mulbauer, looking for trouble, because the reality is that the trouble exists, whether you know about it or not. And so deals are won and lost, not based on what's going on in the sales meeting and the conversation, it's everything in between. And so that's what you're trying to unpack and uncover is after you hang up, the executive is talking with this champion in a you know one-on-one or some other team meeting. And they're like, hey, that conversation that you were having with Nick or with Nate, I get it, but it's not the focus right now. Put it to the side. That's what you're trying to uncover so that you can you can do something about it. You can address that.
0: One place that I get really worried is we get to this end of this meeting, and I hear this phrase all the time. We're great. We liked what we saw today. Give us a second to sink internally. And so go the closed doors, and I have no idea what's happening in that conversation. I don't know who else is getting pulled into that conversation. Is there anything that you're doing to ensure that that conversation goes well once this meeting is done?
2: Yeah, So one of the questions or the phrases that I like to use is, hey, it seems like things have been going pretty smoothly that based on the conversation, you're excited, or at this is at least worth continuing the conversation on. I'm wondering if there is anybody who might be willing to disagree with us, and maybe we could have a conversation with them about this. And so again, looking for trouble, what you're trying to do is invite and welcome a follow-up conversation, not around what they're expecting, which is like, let's keep the deal moving, But you're actually saying, could there be a way that we try to derail this? And I'll often include a phrase or some context there, which is what we do with my team planning internally, which is a pre-mortem. Like whenever we feel like we are cruising into a decision, we try to look for all of the reasons why this might be bad and go off the rails. And so I might add something like, hey, we have a rule with my own team. Whenever we're feeling optimistic about a project, We can't make a decision unless somebody does disagree with us. And we found reasons why it may not work. And most people, they're kind of like, yeah, all right.
1: Nate, I want to go all the way back to something you talked about in your top three actionable takeaways, which was the idea of the reverse demo. And I have to imagine we have some listeners who are like, wait, what is that? Does that mean I demo my demo backwards? Do I do it with an Uno card in my, my pocket? Can you talk me through... You get on the meeting, you're supposed to be showing a demo to a a functional user. What are you doing in advance of that meeting or what are you doing in the beginning of the meeting to be like, hey, this is going to be a little bit different than what you're normally used to?
2: Yeah. So when you're talking to a daily user, you know they spend so much of their day in workflow in product. So in prep, what I do is I have multiple different tabs pulled open in my browser at different points within my product that relate to different use cases. So I have those staged and ready to go. Then what I'm doing is through discovery, trying to figure out, okay, based on this person's job, what are the most common things that they spend the majority of their time in and what sucks, quite frankly, about the way they get that job done. Now, what I ask is to say, I think I'm generally understanding, but it would be helpful to maybe go a step deeper. If you'd be open to it, would you mind sharing your screen with me so that I could see how this works? And so this is where it's the reverse demo because it's the prospect giving you a demo. They're doing the screen share. They're controlling the walkthrough. And they're like, hey, this is what my life looks like right now, right? Then once that's done, you go to the tab that you have staged that relates to what they just showed you. And then you are giving them screen control or mouse control and saying, great. Well, to give you an idea of the difference between what you are doing today and what it would be like to do the same thing inside of our product, here, I'll turn over the screen share and you can click through. And so they are experiencing stepping into life with your product after they demoed you on what life is today.
1: I love this one. When I learned it for the first time, I was selling like this ERP accounting software to law firms and I would have all of these different like accounting AP specialists who were extremely process oriented and fixated on this is how I do my job today. And they were terrified that this new software was going to not enable them to process a bill. And I'm like, set that aside. What we would do is we would get on the demo and say, like, and they would be asking a bunch of questions about, well, can it do this? Can it do this? And I would say, I'm going to show you that actually other folks have found it really helpful if they show me what they have to do. And then what I'll do is because I know exactly the steps you need to take, I can show you exactly how that gets done in our software. And people eat that up because one, you're, you're actually signaling, I really, really care about your individual experience. It's the best discovery. Like, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Think about an actual demo from your prospect. You want to talk about uncovering pain. They'll be like, oh yeah, and by the way, this button does doesn't work. And then it's amazing. It's really really cool. But what do you do? Sometimes I ran into this like I would then say, "All right, take control of my screen." And the prospect just couldn't figure out my software. And it was supposed to be easy, but like I don't know, it'd be this this person who just was not tech competent. Like, what do you do if they're actually struggling on the reverse demo?
2: Well, and this is where you use a bit of some judgment, right? You got to make a call based on like the perceived, maybe it's a strong word, but competency of this person, right? And because they are doing the demo first, you are seeing, are they using their mouse for everything or are they using hotkeys on their keyboard, right? You're going to get a good read on how proficient they will be and then marry that with the complexity of your own product, right? This won't be a slam dunk for every person. Maybe you walk them through it once so that they see it and then you turn over the control to them so that they can do it. So you'll have to adapt it a little bit, but those would be the two two ways to get a read on the situation.
0: Nate, I feel like you probably have an answer for this one just because you're the master of having materials when you're not necessarily in front of a customer. What do I do when customers after this reverse demo or the forward demo, whatever kind of demo, they're like, hey, can I get a sandbox? Or could you send me like some, you know, a pitch deck overview with some screenshots of your product? And now I'm worried about them like bastardizing what my product does and trying to do a PowerPoint demo to their executive team. How do you control that narrative
2: around your product? So I would start by saying it seems like there's something that I haven't yet gotten to cover with you that you're trying to figure out or understand a little bit deeper. Is there anything maybe specific that you're trying to test for or trying to experience a little bit more? And so the idea is that it could be okay to give them a sandbox, but you need to know exactly what it is that they're trying to dig into, because if you just let them loose with a untimed box trial, unfettered product access, it's like Pandora's box. (laughs) So many different things can come out of that. So what you want to do is contain it to a very specific question that they're trying to prove out and they just haven't had the information for. And many times, as you go deeper, it may not even require product access that may not be the best way to go about answering or disproving some of the doubt or skepticism that is, it's the thing behind the thing, the reason why they're asking for that.
1: Nate, this has been such a fun episode, but we are running out of time. The clock is ticking. So we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of great things salespeople should be doing. Now I'm going to ask it about a shouldn't. And so the last question is this. What is one bad habit that you see a lot of
2: salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Everybody practices and spends so much time thinking about the pitch during the meeting. What you shouldn't do and what gets neglected because of that is sending the same template follow-up email plug-and-play standard product deck in follow-up because you are not controlling the message that is being shared around the buying team outside of those sales meetings. So no more link stacking, sending a bunch of case studies, all stacked and bullet pointed. It needs to be unique or different for each account. If it wouldn't be weird, totally weird to send this follow-up email for this account to another account, then you shouldn't send it. Don't send that email.
1: Great episode, Nate. Thank you. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon.
0: This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. Rocket reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Nate Nasralla include number one, start your meeting or send your calendar invite five minutes late and send a pre-read business case memo to the key executive who's joining that call. Number two, that business case should not be created in a silo. It should be madlibbed. In other words, you write out the -the fill-in-the-blank sentences that describe the problem, the approach, et cetera, and have your prospect fill in the blanks. Number three, in that case, use their nomenclature. In other words, the trigger phrase, the thing that they call their key initiative internally to catch the eye of that executive. And then lastly, number four, when you're actually ready to demo this thing, you should do the reverse demo. Have them walk you through their process and then have them take your screen control and demo your product. All righty, Nick, how can people
1: help us out here? Well, on this episode, we talked about the connective tissue strategy, where we say, hey, if people listen to the podcast, they may enjoy our monthly not-so-boring newsletter where Armand and I share all of the best stuff that we learn on these podcast interviews in a nice digestible email for your consumption. So if you want to go in the show notes and help us out with our connective tissue strategy, you can get access to our 30 MPC newsletter there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the show. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is
0: from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.